think when I came here uh, a little over 18 years ago, Scott was around two years old and Wes uh, maybe a year or so. And I've had the joy of watching them grow. And I've had the privilege of seeing them surrender to God with everything. I remember when Scott uh, walked away from basketball and uh, he, God was just moving on his heart and all of a sudden as important as basketball was to a young buck, uh, God became more important. I watched Wes go through the challenges of, of uh, baseball and then realizing that uh, everything that happened to him was part of God's plan, his script that God wrote for his life. And he realized there was something more important than baseball, and that's God. And so as I began to think about what I was going to do and, and how to close out our year, these two young men came to my heart. And so we sat down and ate. I had to pay for it, but we ate together. And uh, we, uh, we discussed a wonderful passage of Scripture. And I want to invite you this morning to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. And we're going to attempt to break down the prodigal son to you, okay? Um, of course, the word prodigal is not found in the parable, even though most apply to uh, the young son as the prodigal. However, I tell you what I think. I think it might be better applied to God. You can decide that. Uh, as we walk through whether the prodigal is really the young boy, which would be played by the role of Wes this morning, or whether the prodigal's really God, okay? In Luke chapter 15, and I'm not, I don't want to read this particular but verses, but, but if you look at verse 1 and 2, what we find is Jesus interacting with two groups of people. And both groups are represented in the story of the prodigal son. Verse 1, we have the tax gatherers and the sinners. Uh, they were the wild ones. But there was something about Jesus that always got their attention. Everywhere you read in Scripture, you find that the wild ones uh, were attracted to the message of Christ. They wanted to hear what was going on. We might call them the libertines. They're the ones who lived with wild unrestraint in their life. They, uh, they were after something. There was a hole, perhaps, that they were trying to fill. And they tried everything. And Wes will tell us a little bit about that. Verse 2, we find the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the hardline religionists. When you read about them in Scripture, you always find them kind of grumbling. I don't think they ever understood the joy of the Lord or what the joy comes from the Lord. We might call them the legalists. Now, by way of introduction, what I want you to know is this. They're both lost, okay? Both of them are alienated from the Father, but in different ways. One was lost to wild unrestraint. Uh, we have an indication, and Wessel maybe tell us that something happened in his life. He woke up. I don't want to scare you thunder. He came to, he, I believe, came to the Lord. The other one, I think Scott's got the harder job because we don't really know what happened to him. What we do know is that both of these were lost at the time of the story when it was told. Uh, both were pushing human performance. And what I mean by that, one in maybe the religionist in a good way, the, the wild child in a bad way, but both of them were emphasizing their own activity, their own actions. 
what our hope today is to show you that you're not saved. You don't go to heaven by being good. You don't go to hell by being bad. You go to heaven because you're saved. And so what our intention is and what we talked about was try to get across to you that the only way someone enters eternity with Christ is through what's called radical grace. And that's what we want to talk to you a little bit about, okay? Would you stand in honor of God's word? And why don't we begin reading verse 11? We'll read through verse 32. And then after that, Wes is going to come. After that, Scott will come. And then I'll, I'll close, okay? Luke 15, beginning verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country where he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into, sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. By the way, that's the way the world is, by the way. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up. I will go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, well, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. He was not willing to go in. And his father came out, began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you, you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him. And the dad said, son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine and but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he has been found. Father, I pray for these young men that will be sharing today. God, I pray that you'll encourage their hearts. I pray that you'll 
bless their heart as they encourage and bless our hearts. Father, these are good young men. These are surrendered young men. God, I pray that, Lord, as they live their life in preparation of your call, that, God, you'll richly bless their work for the glory of God. Help us to take this passage and share only what needs to be shared for this group right here, right now, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thanks. Be seated, Wes. Share. I don't understand why I don't get one of the headsets, but it's whatever. Um, uh, you know, we come in a point in our lives sometimes where we have to make decisions. We have to make decisions for ourselves, and sometimes we'll make a decision and we look back on it, and that was just a terrible decision. You know, like Brother Tom here, he decided that he was going to let me and Scott talk 10 minutes. He'll be lucky if we even, if he even gets a chance before Sunday school. You know, I don't know. But um, right here, here's the situation of a boy who came to a point in his life where he, he decided to make a decision. And like Brother Tom's decision, it was by far the wrong decision. So, you know, here's the situation. Uh, this boy's been living with his dad, you know, living in a sheltered life, living in a good home. And he sees the excitement of the world and what it has to offer. And he decides to leave home and go for it. In verse 12, we notice he's, he's asking for his inheritance. And back then, probably like it is today, you're supposed to get your inheritance when the father dies and the will's written or whatever and, and each son or each child gets what they're supposed to get. And so in this instance, the son's saying, Dad, you need to hurry up and die, but you're taking too long, so give me my stuff. I'm tired of being here. I want to go. So he's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want to go live in the world. And then we get to 13 and 14. That's when the prodigal living and the fall occurs. You see this young boy... He entangled himself in all the, the fascinating sinfulness of the world and, and the draws of the world. He probably found himself in the Middle Eastern Las Vegas or Hollywood, I mean Hollywood. And, and, and he lived it up. He spent it on, on careless sins, on, on things that, that all it did was, was drain him. He was on this worldly treadmill. You know, he was, uh, he was, he was spending all this energy spinning it all up on, on these worldly sinful things. But in reality, he wasn't going anywhere. Just like when you're on a treadmill, you're spending all this energy, but you're not going anywhere. And by, by the end of it, he's drained it all. He's drained all of his last energy. He's drained it all. And then, 15 and 16, verse 15 and 16, he hits rock bottom. He's at the point in his life where he has nothing. All of his friends he thought he had due to his money had left him. He had nothing to do. He didn't have no food. And so he's, he's feeding pigs for a living. And now, due to who Jesus is talking to here, you know, the Pharisees, probably some tax collectors and some sinners, this boy's probably of a Jewish heritage. And for him to even be around some pigs was just quite disgusting. It was, it was, it was literally sinful for them to eat it or to be around it, to touch it. So what this boy was literally in, he was stuck in sin. He was stuck in sin, feeding a sinful thing. And the only way out of it, as we see in verse 17 through 24, something beautiful happens. He notices that the only way I can get out of this is if I go home to Dad. I know that at Dad's house, even the servants are getting fed good. At Dad's house, there's peace. At Dad's house, everything's okay. 
And so the boy, he decides it's time to go home. But now let's check out, before we, before we get into that, I want you to notice what the boy says he wants to say in his apology and his plea for forgiveness. He's ready to say, you know, Dad, I, I've sinned against you and against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Now I want you to recognize when we get there how the boy plans to tell his dad and ask for forgiveness and what the father allows him to say or wants him to say. So here we have it. The boy knows he's at rock bottom feeding a bunch of pigs with nothing to eat. And so he's headed to the house. He's probably practicing his lines like I did a thousand times last night. And he's headed to the house. You know, Dad, I messed up. Oh, my goodness. And so here's the father. He's standing on top of a hill probably, looking out over all of his land, just waiting for his boy to come home. And lo and behold, the father sees him coming from a long distance off. And out of the pure just love and kindness and, and joy in the father's heart, He's like, oh my goodness, is that my boy? Is he coming home? He takes off. He runs. And at that point in time, in that time frame, for a man, especially a man that owned a lot of land and had servants and stuff like that, for him to run, you know, I don't want to call it like a disgrace or something like that, but it just wasn't something they were supposed to do. It just wasn't meant for a man to run. He was supposed to walk gracefully, and you know what I'm talking about. And so... The, the father was so wrapped up in love and joy that his boy had decided to turn from the way of sin and come home to him. He was so full of love that he ran. He ran to his boy, forgetting all that his son had done, for all that his son had said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give him my money so I can leave. He ran to him, hugged him, kissed him. He was so excited. And then we, here we see the boy's ready to say his apology, his ask, plea for forgiveness. So he says, all right, I've practiced this a million times. Dad, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you and God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And right before he can say, make me like one of your servants, the father cuts him off. And you know why? Why the father cuts him off from being one of his servants? Because there was no way that that father wasn't going to claim him back as his. There's no way the father had lost his love for his son, for his own, that he wouldn't even take him back. That he wouldn't even call him his own ever again. He wouldn't take him back. And so the father was so excited, so full of love, that his son had come home to a home of, of care and of correction and love and joy and peace. There was no way he wasn't going to claim him as his own. And it's the same way with us and God. You know, you know uh, God sent his son, Jesus, down on the cross for our sins for forgiveness of our sins, because He loved us. And that all He's wanting us to do is to come home, to leave that sinful way of life and come home. And that home is accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. There's no other way. That is home. And that too is a home of care, correction, love, joy, and peace. And it's also the only home in which you can find eternal life. My dad, he's started reading this book. It's called Surrender to Love. And in chapter 1, it's discussing this prodigal son story, and it, and it relates this boy's return home and all, all that situation to us today. And listen to what this book has to say. It starts off. It reminds me that far from focusing on my own sins, God sees me through the eyes of love. All my fears about how God will respond to me in my sin wash away as I see the Father running to me. Why did I stay away so long? 
how could I ever have thought that he would let me come back as a slave? Clearly, I never need to fear returning to him, no matter what I have done or not done, because God love, God's love has nothing to do with my behavior. Now, the question I have is, do some of us need to come home? Do we need to leave what we have behind and come home? I noticed it in my life. I needed to leave it behind and come home. Scott saw it in his life. He needed to leave it behind and come home. And praise the Lord, Brother Tom did too. So that's the question I have for you today. Is there some things that you need to notice, leave behind, and come home to Jesus? Church, the older brother in this story is a, is a character that's often looked over. It's a character that's often uh, not paid a whole lot of attention to. It's often ignored. Uh, in fact, a lot of times when people will preach about it, they'll stop at verse 24 and they won't even go on to the, to the rest of this passage. Um, but Jesus added this intentionally. It wasn't on accident that he, that he told the story of this older brother. It wasn't on accident that he added this character in Scripture, and it wasn't on accident that Matthew thought it was important enough to add it into, into his account of the gospel. So church, as we take a look at the purpose uh, of adding this older brother, I think we need to, to first start and, and look at who it was directed towards. Who does the older brother represent? We see in verse 2 that the Pharisees were present uh, whenever Jesus was telling the story. And I think this is, him adding the older brother was him directly addressing the Pharisees and directly addressing their legalistic lifestyle and directly addressing uh, them in the way that they live and in the way that they treat the people around them, the way that they treat the people that they're supposed to love. In the church, as we begin, as we begin to look at this, we see a character who's not just a jealous older brother. In the church, whenever... Uh, I honestly, whenever I first, when Brother Tom first asked me to take a look at this and, and, and to talk about this older brother, I thought, how am I going to talk 10 minutes about an older brother who's just jealous of his, of his little brother? We began to, to dive more into this. You see, this is not a story of just a jealous older brother. This is a story of an older brother who's very self-centered, who's very selfish. This is an older brother whose relationship with his father is not about loving and serving his father. It's about himself. Church, this older brother, his whole relationship with his father, everything that he did for his father, all the serving he did for his father was not for his father, not because he loved him. It was for the reward that he would get in return. Church, he did it for his own recognition and for his own glory. And Church, he saw, the, the older brother saw, as he viewed his relationship with his father, was one, it was 100% performance-based. It was only about what he could do. It was only about how good he could be. What he failed to see was that his father loved him no matter what he would do. There was nothing he could do to make his father love him more, and there was nothing he could do to make, him, make his father love him less. And so, with this attitude that the older brother had, this lifestyle that he lived, we see that this selfishness and this this performance-based nature has caused him to, to resent his younger brother when he came home. When he came home, he was not 
overjoyed with the return of his brother, that his brother had come back to the father, that his brother had come back to the family. He resented him. He was angry. And so when he went to confront his father, the only thing he could point to was said, Father, look at all that I did and compare it to all that my little brother did. Why are you, why are you throwing a party for him? Why did you kill the fattened calf? Why did you do all of these things for him? Why are you celebrating him and you never celebrated me? All he had to point to is what he had done. And what he didn't realize is it didn't matter what he did. His father was going to love him. And church, we see this a lot with our people today, don't we? We see this a lot with the people in the church today. We see a lot of people who their relationship with God is 100% about themselves. Their relationship with God is not centered around him and serving him and loving him. It's about what God can do for them. They don't love God. They love God's stuff. They don't, they don't serve the Father for the joy of serving the Father. They serve the Father for what the reward they will get in return. In church, these kind of people, they point out everything that they can do. They try their hardest. They give everything they have to be good, to be good enough. Give everything they have to do good enough. What we, they fail to realize, and what we often fail to realize, is it doesn't matter how good we are, church. The basic human condition, we will never be good enough. It doesn't matter how much good we do. It doesn't matter how good we think we can be. We are not able and we are not capable to be good enough. Church, it says in Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Not by actions, not by works, not by performance, lest any man should boast. Church, we cannot work our way to salvation. We cannot work our way home. But church, we, it, it's easy to try to work your way back. Church, whenever we fall into sin, church, it is easy to try to justify ourselves by what we do. Church, it's easy to try to, to say, I'll, I'll do better. I'll do more. I'll go to church more. I'll serve more. But church, in that, we've missed the point. And church, if we base our entire salvation based off of what we can do, we're going to fail. Church, to me, the scariest words in all of Scripture are what Jesus addresses, or how Jesus addresses these kind of people in Matthew chapter 7. And he says, these people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I've done. Look, look, Jesus, I, I tithe, I went to church, I served in the kids' ministry, I was a leader at youth camp. Lord, let me into heaven. Look at all of these things that I've done. And Jesus will look back at them and say, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Church, as much as we want to try to justify everything that we can do, we will never be good enough. Church, it's not about what we can do, it's about all that Jesus has already done and what he can do through us and in us. Church, it's about coming home. And church, I want to invite us to just to reevaluate ourselves today. To step back and take a look. Why do I do what I do? Am I doing this for my own glory? Am I doing this for my own sake? Am I doing this for my own reward? Am I doing this for other people to look at me and see how, how cool I am or how great I am? Do I go to church so that other people will look at me and think better of me? 
Do I serve so that other people will recognize how great of a person I am? Or do we do this for the glory of God? Or we serve God because we love him? Do we love God or do we love his stuff? I close, just invite us to, to reevaluate, evaluate ourselves on why we do what we do and what, why we are who we are. Well, with all the stuff we hear about with regard to young people and things like that, when you hear these two young boys, you get the sense that the church is okay, huh? And the church will be okay. Whoever came up with the word prodigal to refer to the younger son, I don't know. But if you were to go to the dictionary and you were to type in and Google prodigal, here's what you would read. Reckless. One who gives away all that he has. Spendthrift. The one who not only gives away everything that he has, but he has nothing left. Now in the story, I know it's a parable, but it sounds awfully like a story, doesn't it? Hmm? In fact, when you read it, it almost causes you to look in a mirror and maybe evaluate your life like Scott said, right? But I want to suggest something to you. In this parable or story, whatever you want to call it, who was reckless? Who gave his all? Who was the prodigal? Can I maybe suggest to you that the prodigal was God? You see, when you step out of performance and you step into grace, what you realize is that it was God who was the prodigal. That it was God who gave everything. It was God who didn't have anything else to give because he gave his all. And he gave his all to both of the boys because he loved both of the boys equally. One was a wild child. Can you relate to that? Hmm? One was a religionist. I mean, he dotted every I. He crossed every T. He walked the straight and narrow. And Scott said something about tithing. Don't pay attention to that tithe. But he did, did all the other stuff, right? And yet both of the boys were messed up. Both of the boys, one of them I think came. I believe he really did. The wild child. Isn't it amazing? The wild child of the earth begin to realize there's something missing and they find sometimes what's missing. But oftentimes, it's the religionists that fail to realize the beauty of grace. I'm going to take just a few moments. Take your Bible and, and open up to that. Keep your pa passage open. And let's take just a few moments, beginning in, in verse 20. I, I want to just close this out 
giving you a perspective from the Father, okay? Because I think the, the goal that we three have to you is to help you realize what an awesome God and what a loving God. And there's something in this passage that, that we don't want you to miss, something you, you really need. If you look at verse 20, notice, first of all, what he saw. He got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Amazing, isn't it? A long way off. Anytime you're outside the will of God, it's a long way from the father. But as he was a long way off, the dad sees him. That tells us that the father's looking. He's wondering. He's watching. He's looking. Every day that that boy was away, dad was looking and watching and waiting. In the human part of the story, perhaps the dad was wondering how the boy was doing. Maybe if the boy was even surviving. You see, the dad knew the boy was in trouble because any boy that leaves his dad the way this boy left his dad is going to be in trouble. Huh? Can you relate to that? I can. 20s were tough. I'm glad 30s come because I don't like the 20s in my life. So. And when a boy leaves the dad the way this boy left his dad, dads know there's trouble. And yet the father's watching. The father's seeking. And then scripture, that's what it tells us about God. That God's a seeking God. That God takes the initiative. That God goes out looking. He's the reckless one. We don't find in Scripture man seeking God. We find God seeking man. In fact, the Bible says there are none that seeketh after God. So if man is ever to find God, it will be because God takes the initiative and injects himself. It is that, that God will interrupt your life with his grace. And that's what God does to those he loves. The Bible says man loves darkness rather than light. We go astray from birth speaking lies. We're not looking for God. You're saved today. God's looking for you. And he came to you. And he grabbed you by his grace. And he radically transforms your life according to grace. Could it be this morning that God is a seeking father looking for you? But not just what he saw. If you look at verse 20, notice what he felt. The Bible says his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and like Wes said, ran, which wasn't dignified in that culture, and embraced him and kissed him. You see, not only do we have a seeking father, but I want you to go away this morning knowing that you have a smiling father. Do you sense the emotion here? The word saw is not just to observe. It's a word which means to stare, to discern, to Look and see inside the heart, through the eye gate, into the heart. 
where people are. That's what that word means. I was talking to a, a young preacher some time ago, and he asked me, he said, how have you made it uh, 18 plus years at one church? And I wanted to say because they're deaf and dumb and blind, but I didn't. I said, well, I'll tell you, part of it is that my 20s were so bad, so bad, that sometimes when I preach, God allows me to see through the eye gate into the soul of the people, primarily the men. And I understand I'm a guy, so guy things connect and Girls, I don't know what you think a lot, but I can look in the eyes of guys, and I know where you're at, guys. And see, that's what that word means, to understand the inadequacies we live with, the insufficiencies we have to deal with, the insecurities that we have to come to terms with in our life. Now, the word felt compassion, it's actually one word. We have two felt compassion. It's one word. It's an intense word. It, it means more than pity. It's, word, it's a word that means to be uh, gut-wrenched. We, in fact, we get the word spleen from it. So we have the picture of this dad looking way down the road because he had been watching every day since that boy left. And he recognizes and he discerns not just the appearance but in his heart, he said, oh, what a mess this boy's in. My boy, my boy is in a mess. And it grips his gut. Just grips whole. I mean, if, if you have children and grandchildren and you know the struggles they go through, man, you can't get away from it, can you? Scott, when you were going through your thing, I can tell you, your daddy and mama were gut-wrenched. Wes, when you were going through your thing, guess what? Mom and dad were gut-wrenched. You can't get away from that because that's what love does, you see. And so he sees his boy and he rejoices. He doesn't know what was going to take place at this point. All he sees is the boy coming home. Can you imagine what it must feel like for God the Father when a sinner repents? comes home. The Bible tells us that angels rejoice around the throne when a sinner repents. And angels know nothing of redemption. They're created beings. They don't have a soul. They just rejoice and hoop and holler and sing and all that when someone repents. Can you imagine how the father feels when a boy comes home? See? So not just what he saw, what he felt. But then notice verse 21 through 24, we'll not reread it, but notice what he did. Let, let your eyes gander at that for a moment. What did he do? The picture painted on the canvas is a portrait, I think, of salvation. The father took the very best he had, the best robe, the best ring, the best cash, gave the best away. Listen, that's reckless because he had already given away his inheritance. But what he had, he gave. That's reckless. That's what prodigals do. They give what they have to those they love. But today, if you belong to the Father, guess what? That's what he did 
for you. And you need to go out of here knowing that. You need to leave here realizing that's what he did. Greatest picture of sacrifice is what the Father gives. And this story was told by the very one making the sacrifice. Jesus, in describing the sacrifice, was talking about himself. He knew what he was about to give. For all of the Father's children. Maybe for you. Let's pray. Barbara's going to come and we're going to take a moment. Maybe this morning. It's been a while since you heard the story. Maybe this morning the wheels are turning. Oh, I've been away. I need to get home. Everything the boy ever wanted was where he left it, at daddy's table. As we begin a new year together, dear church, maybe today will be the right start of this new year when you come back to the table to begin fresh. Father, I love you. I praise you. I thank you for the word. Maybe today, something that these young preachers have said, has gripped their hearts and made them realize there are some adjustments. We've forgotten the joy and the smile of the Father. So maybe there's some business we need to do. In Christ's name. Amen. Let's keep our heads bowed. Barbara's going to play softly. You don't need a preacher to come to. We know that. Right there in your seat. You can say something like, you know, God, I'm coming home. I've traveled far. I've been all around in my spiritual walk. I've been hot and cold. And been so gray. But I want to begin fresh. I see you're seeing me. I see you're smiling. And so today, dear God, I commit to you. This year will be your year. Now, if you want me to pray with you or these boys, we're here because we love you. And if you'd like to come and have prayer, then we invite you to do that right now.